0: Because it's always interesting to us when desire to build something is also personally driven, and there's an internal passion and a reason why an entrepreneur builds something.
1: And while I was developing the the cardiac models, my my father was diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer. The the problem was my dad's unique. Um, Every patient with cancer is unique, and looking back, uh, if we would have had the models that that, uh, exist today in our in our company likely my father would have made a different treatment choice
0: hey everyone welcome to brains behind ai show where we meet the innovators entrepreneurs and the real brains behind some of the most successful ai startups We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit. And from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Brains Behind AI. I am Ari Yakobi. I have with me my co-host, Natalie Thomas, and we have a very special guest, Bobby Palmer, with us. Bobby is a healthcare AI entrepreneur, and as most of you who know me know that I get extra excited when I get a healthcare AI startup on the show, and today is one of those shows. So, Natalie, let's introduce Bobby to the audience.
2: Absolutely. Bobby Palmer is the president and CEO of Potentia Metrics an Austin, Texas-based healthcare analytics company. The company's data analytics and artificial intelligence platforms helps providers, payers, and medical technology companies inform personalized treatment plans by comparing patient-level outcome data related to survival, quality of life, and cost of care. Bobby creates the company's vision and strategic direction to develop the multi-institutional, real-world outcome registries that enable the creation of its unique Personalized AI platforms. As a business owner and CEO for over 20 years, as well as two decades of experience in data analytics, Bobby has obtained funding for and managed numerous multi million dollar enterprises. Bobby also received his MBA from Washington University in St. Louis. Bobby, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you
0: for having me. Bobby, before we dive into your startup, can you take a minute to tell our audience about your personal background? in how your personal background was a trigger to what you do today in your startup. Because it's always interesting to us when desire to build something is also personally driven, and there's an internal passion and a reason why an entrepreneur builds something. So if you can take a moment to tell our audience about your personal background and how it influenced you to build what you have today.
1: The story goes back to my start in in healthcare was working with a large group of cardiac surgeons and developing predictive analytics for uh, cardiac surgery outcomes. And my background training is in statistical analysis, mainly economic backgrounds looking at developing risk models. I was adapting many of those uh, um, approaches that going back almost 20 years ago were were, were historically used mainly in in the financial services industry to medical. And, And while I was developing the the cardiac models my my father was diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer so uh 70 otherwise healthy he jogged five miles a morning was his diagnosis we met with his physicians and we were told uh cancer spread to the, the liver and lung so very difficult diagnosis but i'm surrounded by physicians i'm building risk models certainly there's something that, that we can do and adapt some of the work that we've been doing in cardiac to cancer which which I assumed would which would have been much more advanced than, than the work that we were doing in cardiac. But what I found is there was a dirge of information available to us that was specific to my father. So metastatic patients hard to find information on, pretty much anything that we were able to find, I felt like throwing up after I would read through it. So I was pretty much ineffective just from an emotional standpoint and also from an analytic standpoint, my ability to support my father. So What we reverted to, what we did, surrounded by physicians, I put together a roundtable group of very experienced surgeons, clinicians, oncologists, general practitioner docs, to what would you do That question, which I hear over and over again among patients. And what what we landed on was basically the physicians, and looking back, I would do the same thing basically pushed us towards these are the guidelines for 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 patients that, that have a, a diagnosis similar to your father and this is what we would recommend. The problem was my dad's unique. Every patient with cancer is unique. And looking back, if we would have had the models that, that uh, exist today in our in our company, likely my father would have made a different treatment choice. And what happened with him, we moved towards a course of treatment, which we did with the best information we had at the time. Um, the result was my dad died in about a year, and he really died to the side effects of treatment. And looking back, that last year of his life was really difficult in the hospital more than not, multiple surgeries, multiple infections. We would have had a very complex decision to make with the tools that, that we have, the information we provide, that would have set us more based upon, we have a challenging diagnosis. It's much more challenging than we knew. And our outlook was was a, a much more Optimistic than it should have been, and it pushed us towards treatment that resulted counterintuitively in the suboptimal outcomes and all that. Gap.
0: I see. So as you started looking at your father's case in case study and started evaluating and started seeing the gaps, where did you go from there?
1: So one of the the problems that, that exist in cancer care is if you look at the, the outcomes of clinical trials. They answer questions around efficacy, and they're really important questions, and, and there's nothing wrong with the way that the expressions are structured on the basis of clinical trials. But if you look at the trial participants, they're tightly controlled. Uh, um, they're literally science experiments that are performed on, on the outcomes of these patients. But in the meanwhile, what, when you look in the, in, the, in the waiting room, patients tend to be older. They, they have other diseases, comorbidities. They have different stages of disease, and combinations of all of those factors make the participants in the real world quite different than those that are in the clinical trials who tend to be younger, less racially, and ethnically diverse, and uh, healthier in general than the populations that are treated for cancer. With more grain of information, the goal of what we're doing is really not about directing any individual towards a given regimen of care or treatment decision. These are multifactorial and deeply personal choices that individuals are forced to make, but rather give them transparency, give them the best information available to chart what is for every patient at the end of the day an unknown future course.
0: Interesting. So now you have this analysis and, and you've started working through some of that. Uh, when did you feel a calling where you said, This is a startup here. This is a real opportunity, and I need to go for it.
1: For two decades, I've worked in in developing models for financial services. I've I've done work in in, uh, multiple industries, including healthcare. But when I first saw the healthcare data, I'd never seen the level of variation that was presented to me there and also the the impact on on people. So at, at the end of the day, doing important work, we all have a limited amount of time that we can we can dedicate to what we do, and I want this my time to be spent on something that's, a, that's very impactful and looking back would have helped people like my dad. So seeing the variation that existed, I saw a massive opportunity that, that I wanted to focus my, my time. on.
2: I was just going to ask, when was that moment for you? How long ago was that?
1: So I was presented with the uh, the cancer data. I, I saw it for the first time in. Uh, 2011. So that was really the moment where I saw tremendous variation and, and I started building the, the cardiac models going back to 2004. During that period of time that I was seeing a the variation, but also learning the system, learning about the data. I don't have a, a medical background or training, so I had to bring on team members that have the clinical understanding that, it's a, that is a gap for me remains a gap. I, I'm, I'm not clinical. But I brought other aspects and, and understanding of the building well, risk models that, that they, they didn't have experience.
0: Got it. So so where did you start? That was actually going to go there. Did you go out and start bringing, pulling together the team that was going to build this out to do a pilot? Did you go reach out to a client first that you can POC this with? Because it's an interesting problem, right? And the dynamics, you can't really solve it in a silo you need to partner with the healthcare company, you need the data, you need the record. Right. How did you push that?
1: Partnering with multiple academic institutions is where I began. So we need access to the core data. And we need access to the core data also with a, with a long enough grain that we can look at comparative outcomes over time. We started com- combining data sets from multiple institutions that, that treat patients, I want to say, in quotation marks differently. So that we could look at patients that for instance treat higher volumes of patients with radiation and surgeries and so now we've, we've got um, comparisons there we can look at large data sets multiple strata of patients from age from stage perspective from treatment choices and and start comparing their outcomes and so it began with that and then in parallel how do we best quantify these outcomes from an analytic approach perspective? So one of the important aspects that I wanted to focus on is that this can't be a black box. a it, it, it uh, uh, patients are looking at this with their physicians. This can't be mystical. And how do we how do we value these outcomes? So while while we do have unique IP per se in, in the in the way that we put together these models, we've used. Approaches that that are clinically sound and externally validated, so that physician would look at this and say, "Oh, you're using proportional hazard models. I understand that. I understand how you got these numbers. I understand the base data that, that you're using, how it's gathered, that, that uh, um, there are rules associated with the data that you're that you're gathering. So I know I can trust that that a patient that received treatment A actually receives that treatment. That a patient." The um, the diet that died within this time frame. So we spent a lot of time on really fundamental questions in, in determining our approach, and then post developing the tools, backtesting and validating externally the, the tools that we have, so that we're not creating a platform that that uh, causes additional confusion. We really want to create transparency, and and that's critical to the transparency is that you can trust the information we provide.
0: That's great. Can you talk to us about your experience piloting this technology? I ask because healthcare is a complex space. Any new technology must go through a lot of validation before it makes its way through to the patient. So I'm curious what your experience was like piloting it and then scaling the technology out.
1: Starting with academic centers, uh, we worked with academic centers and doing internal uh, files of the platform, focusing on certain groups of patients, for instance, uh, newly diagnosed African-American women with breast cancer, and having them use the platform and give us their feedback. Was this the information that that you would look for? Was it valuable to you? Was it relevant? Do you understand it? There were many underlying questions that that we had to answer through these studies. So some of the pushback, for instance, is if you provide patients information about their prognosis, some some would say it's too scary. Um, It's something that Patients would just want to work with their physicians and would share with their physicians that they, they don't want to know, they don't want to ask the, the individual questions. What, we're, what we found was there were uh, groups of patients within, within our studies that resonated towards one of this information more than others. So, for instance, engineers, physicians, uh, on people with quantitative backgrounds, lights out, they want this information. Some patients are scared. Just want their doctor to tell them what to do, and that's okay. Um, we uncovered a group of patients within our our, our studies that surprised me and, and uh, others in the group as well. Uh, minority, non-English speaking patients also wanted these patients, uh, this information at a very high level because they believe the system is wired against them and they're giving suboptimal care, which is if you look at the, the data and our outcomes, unequivocally, they are. If you look at race as a factor of prognosis, um, Adjusting for important factors such as stage, comorbidity, there is a difference and minority non-English speaking individuals tend to have worse prognosis. So testing it not just from a tool perspective, but also from a, a usability and uptake perspective, was uh, it, an important component. What we're working on now is is another important component is is, is getting this from a, a, a scaling perspective. Work, how do we insert this into the clinical workflows so that physicians can easily access it, capture the patient at the right time when they need it after they're, they're newly diagnosed as soon as possible, and integrating is, is one of the challenges we're working on currently.
2: That was going to go into one of my next questions of the challenges that you've been encountering you know, throughout creating this new company and doing your research and collecting data.
1: I'll start with just... Change in general is hard, we're introducing information that wasn't available before. So while intuitively it makes sense that I would like to know what are outcomes for individuals are similar to me, many times the outcomes will will push towards something that's counterintuitive, meaning that patients may not benefit from treatment. So in my dad's example, if you input the different treatment options into the model, there's no treatment that Improves my dad's prognosis, and in fact, the treatment that he received actually shortened his life, which four out. Even though he's an N of one, that's that's what we experienced with him. The resulting change, and given the variation in outcomes that we see, roughly thirty percent of patients are not benefiting from the, the treatment that they're receiving. And therefore, if you think about the treatments that for cancer, they're uh, invasive treatments, and therefore, we're, we're, they're not helping; they're harming. So that's pretty challenging information there we're not the only ones that are presenting that that's pretty well known but when you think about the different systems in place like for instance in the united states the system is based upon volume of treatment and the economics are, are dependent upon more patients coming through the system so and now we introduce this tool which which is around transparency which matches the right treatment for each patient based upon their values and and many times that that can lead to less treatment, and therefore less less uh, revenue to hospital system, for instance. So, so that's that's one of the challenges that we've had to face. So, uh, another challenge is uh, how do we get this information to patients in a way that they can consume it, understand it, remember it? So multiple studies have shown that less than five percent of adult patients with cancer can explain what their prognosis is to their to their physician so did they understand what the physician told them the answer is overwhelmingly no so and it's not that the physician didn't tell them but when, when patient hears something like for instance you have cancer many times the rest anything else the doctor says is lost now the patient's mind is oh my god i'm going to die what about my, my, my family and even though the, the physician is doing their best to mitigate those factors and explain prognosis patient is so terrified so one of the challenges is how, how do we bridge that gap to where we're providing information that fundamentally is scary, have cancer which is a difficult diagnosis in a way that a patient can relate, understand, and then also help them self-advocate. So that's been a fundamental challenge in helping patients that have issues with clinical literacy and numeracy understand these factors so that they can have deeper, more meaningful conversations with their clinicians and with their family members to talk about what decision I made and why I made it.
0: Very interesting. And Now, let's take a minute to talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning. How are you applying AI and machine learning to the applications that you're building out?
1: If you look at our models, we have models for 14 different cancer sites. We cover roughly 80% of all adult cancers. Each one of the models, while similar approach has the Factors, the variables that we, that we use for our models are specific to each cancer and the weightings of those variables are very different depending on the cancer. So the learning aspect of our models takes into account, for instance, if you look at a patient who has prostate cancer and we take into account age, stage of disease, comorbidity, the other diseases that the, the patient has, and combining those with different treatments or combinations they are And what we're relating on a machine learning basis is what are outcomes of similar patients that have received these different treatments over time so that we can show you five-year survival rates. So the machine learning aspect comes into play when you you think about the population of those patients is changing over time. So in general, the patients are are getting older. We're we're seeing higher levels of, of comorbidity We're seeing different stages of diseases, and we're also seeing dynamic nature with respect to what treatments are provided, so for new and changing treatments. So our models are are training and are updating based upon all these factors interplaying with each other. So, for instance, if we see a new immunotherapy drug that, that comes out We'll start seeing signals in our model that we're seeing improvements in survival among a, a subset of patients that are receiving this immunotherapy drug that is effective. For instance, but but now we also need to look at the the, the other factors that are in play. Or is there a certain strata of patients where this this drug is showing higher levels of effectiveness? And maybe there are certain stages. So so for instance, maybe patients with stage four disease that are that are between forty five and sixty that have a lower levels of comorbidity are are showing much better outcomes than this. So, so giving all those factors together, if you can think about statistically, what I just laid out is tens, hundreds of millions of of combinations of variables that are playing with each other. So without powerful systems of processing speed, we couldn't run the models that we do today. Even, even four or five years ago to compute some of our, our curves, it, it would take 10, 15 hours process in time to compute now we're able to compute much faster and we're also able to add more variables and we're also able to see how these variables interact with each other in, in new and dynamic ways so and the models are, are becoming more precise with higher fidelity and, and this is proven out with our statistics so for instance we look at c statistics as a way of, of, of determining whether in quotation marks how, how good these models are reflective they are what's what's happening and and we're seeing those seed statistics improve over time as well
0: that's excellent bobby and now as you build these models out what was the most challenging part and i'm thinking holistically are we was it getting the right people to work with you was it the process was it the data what was the challenging aspect and and how did you tackle that
1: Fundamentally, obtaining the data is, is a challenge. First of all, people are concerned about releasing it. What are you going to do with it? Is it somehow going to reflect on us in a bad way if you think about if you were part of a hospital system and you've been collecting data, but it's really never been compared to another system's outcome, so you're not sure how, how am I, what are our outcomes at our center compared to another. So that's a challenge, and transparency is hard, and we, we, the approach that, that we've taken is we're we're not making this public. We're not force racing Hospital A versus Hospital B. Rather, by combining multiple centers' outcomes and centers that may do things a little bit differently, we're able to compare and learn from each other. So, mitigating that risk early on was difficult, and still today, basically, anyone that shares information with us, I'm going personally and speaking with them, working with them. We're going to be, first of all, very respectful of your data from a privacy perspective. Those. That's foundational. I mean, we, we, we cannot be identifying patients. We can't do anything with uh, respect to that. But we we get the information that's de-identified already, making it so that it's safe to share this information, and that, that we're supporting a learning system rather than calling out where, where there may be flaws or, or gaps, because certainly they exist within every system. But but the gaps may be idiosyncratic in that. We may see large groups of patients. For instance, the work I did in cardiac surgery, with mortalities would typically come in bunches. Like for for many years, a surgeon or for, for a year, a patient a surgeon may not have any patient deaths, and then all of a sudden, with, in one quarter, they have four patients die, and now all of a sudden they're on the radar screen. What's going on? Your patients are dying. Well, statistically, that's what we would expect to see, but from a human perspective, it just feels like they were bunched. And there must be something going on that's wrong. So that being able to access large data, combine systems together, we're able to smooth those anomalies out.
2: And have you had to pivot in any way with COVID this year? And have you seen a shift in your data sets?
1: Yeah, so COVID has been very difficult for cancer patients. So we're gonna see a large wave of cancer patients hitting in the future that uh, are, are gonna show up by definition Later stage patients because screening isn't occurring at the same levels. Uh, um, patients that, that uh, um, are newly diagnosed are now being delayed, and even something as simple as getting staged. So, patients that are in the system are continuing to be treated, but even those patients are, are going through real complexity. So, imagine you're, you're, you're going through chemotherapy by definition, you're immunosuppressed, and now you're thinking about going into through to your oncologist offices, are you going to be exposed to COVID, which could be a lethal exposure for you. So, so the hesitation factor there, the anxiety, that these patients are already going through with cancer and now you add a whole additional layer. And the isolation there has really been devastating to cancer patients. We're expecting and we will see over the next months and years, patients presenting with, with later stage disease that should have gone in for their colonoscopy over the past six months that didn't, patients that, that should have had an mammogram that didn't, those are just realities that we're going to have to work through. And it's a sad truth, but we're going to see cancer mortality rates have, have a bump up in the coming weeks, are in the coming months. And years. Yeah.
0: You bring a very interesting point, right? As because of COVID-19 and this pandemic, while we're focused on taking care of the pandemic, we everything else is getting ignored. And, and one of the concerns I have is on the other side of it, say towards 2021, to, towards maybe towards the end, are we going to have a lot more deaths from, from other conditions and other things versus COVID because those were ignored and things yeah. that are way more critical?
1: Yeah. So I'll just use the United States numbers. This is an excellent question. Every year, one point seven million people are diagnosed with cancer in the United States. So many of those cancers are treatable. The vast majority of those patients survive. There's a subset of those patients which have very difficult prognosis. So if you think about pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, difficult to deal with. So we, so if if if, if you would delay the prognosis of those patients, even months, can have a serious impact on, on their abilities to survive this. So so we're going to see a, a tailing response within cancer patients. And if I had to quantify the numbers, uh, um, it wouldn't surprise me if we see excess deaths, meaning patients that are dying that otherwise wouldn't. It would be fifty, hundred thousand patients from cancer, and, that, and that's going to be uh, um, have a tail because of uh, Cancer spreads. Treatment spreads over many years. Um, so we're going to we're going to see this for for the next uh, one five year time frame. We're going to see the, the impact of this, if not longer. So
0: here's the next question, right? And healthcare is one sector where we need innovation, especially that's data driven and analytics driven more than anywhere else. It's in dire need of innovation. It's ironic that the healthcare is the sector that's slowest in terms of innovating and adapting to change. So what advice do you have for healthcare industry leaders that have an important role in healthcare that may be listening to this right now or watching this right now? What would you say to them? How can they help you accelerate and how can we accelerate our healthcare innovation journey?
1: One of the major issues in the healthcare sector that I see is and how long does it take to adopt new technology? So if you look at, at uh, new treatments, it takes on average over 15 years from, from to go from trial to acceptance to delivery in the hospital system. So imagine being a patient on the other side of this and there was a drug that could help you that was produced so many years ago, but you're not aware of it. It's, it's not part, part of the standard of care, so you don't get it. So that would be terrible. That's on the drug side, but now let's let's move to the technology and data side. Where we're seeing vast changes in technology, processor speed, all these important factors are, are changing literally on a monthly basis. And then we're not bringing this new technology to market because it's a, a time to adapt technology can be a year before you would even take part in the sales cycle within within a hospital system. It takes one to two years, and so just so that alone, from a hospital administrator, from, from a um, healthcare plan administrator perspective, if we could move towards a faster speed of app that patient within the different systems institutions, we could save lives, we could save money, but you're going to have to rework your internal systems and processes to, to do that. And that's not easy, we understand. But from the outside, For new companies that are coming up with new technologies, for for, for us to withstand a two-year sales cycle beyond the development period is very difficult from a capital perspective and a team perspective to keep people on board.
2: And I just wanted to ask, based off that question too, do you have advice for aspiring entrepreneurs who perhaps even want to go into the healthcare space?
1: I would find areas where there there are gaps in care. That's that's not going to be the hard part. Harder part, part is going to be find areas where there are gaps in care, and there's also a clear pathway towards reimbursement. So, coming up with the, the new technology and then waiting for CMS to change the rules, or Blue Cross Blue Shield, or United Healthcare to change the rules so where where you can be reimbursed for that is exquisitely difficult. Being able to play into the existing system is there a code to reimburse this already? Is, is there a technology that can fit into an existing code? it moves you so much quicker towards the goal of becoming viable from both a technology and business perspective. So matching those aspects, I think, is is a a fundamental component of a a business plan that I I think many times can be glossed over because you, you get so focused on the clinical need, you don't realize that the other aspect of this could cause you to die a thousand times before you get to success.
0: That's great. So looking into the future, as we look beyond this pandemic in 2021 or 2022, where do you see your technology, your business? What does future looks like for you?
1: Yeah. So we're driving towards a a world where every patient that has a complex diagnosis like cancer can can ask the question and, and receive credible information on what are outcomes for individuals similar to me that, Based upon different treatment choices or combinations thereof, which seemingly is a simple question, and seemingly is something that, that people ought to be able to relate. But if you look at the participants in the in the trial, they tend to be less racially diverse and 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 now that's and, and younger. But the average cancer patient diagnosis is, is north of seventy, and now those patients typically have diabetes or other diseases, obesity, heart disease. They have complex choices to make, and the challenges that they're that they're facing are multidimensional. So, where do I live? Can I keep my job? Can I still watch my kids, my grandkids? We need to provide tools that provide answers, not just to the survival questions, which doctors are keen on and should be, but also taking into account your values, quality of life questions, providing deeper information and that's more relevant and Critically, it's personalized to each individual is, is where I see things moving. And we have the data. We have the underlying technology now that we didn't have in the past, and, and the data is filling in gaps that those exist. So the future where we're driving to is that, and we want to be the company that's that, that's driving this, starting in cancer, but, but expanding into other complex diagnoses as well.
0: That's great, and we need that. So last question. Anyone who is interested in learning more about your business or learning more about you or connecting with you, where can
1: they find you? Our website, Potentiometrics.com, also our cancer platform is MyCancerJourney, uh, MyCancerJourney.com. Thank
0: you, Bobby. It was a pleasure and very, very informational to have you on the show and talk to you about healthcare and the impact AI can make in healthcare. So. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me.
2: Yes, thank you so much. What you're doing is phenomenal. So, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainsbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.